Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today's extra episode is with Thant Mint U, the author of The Hidden History of Burma, and he is going to tell us what's been happening in the country since last week's coup. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, a literary magazine full of politics and a political magazine full of literature. Listeners can subscribe at a special rate of just £1 an issue by using the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. So maybe then we should just start with where we are today. So we're recording this UK time on Tuesday morning. We're about a week out from the coup. What's your understanding of the current situation? The coup was on the 1st of February. The army took over, arrested the president and the de facto head of government, Aung San Suu Kyi, said that they were acting within the emergency provisions of the constitution. They said that they would hand back power after holding elections within a year's time. Since then, protests have been growing every day. They've spread around the country in several different uh, towns and cities. Over the past 48 hours, we've seen massive protests in the biggest city, the former capital, Rangoon, maybe hundreds of thousands of people on the streets yesterday. Yesterday evening, the government put out new regulations. And this morning, they also blocked major intersections and bridges as well in the city. So the protests, I think, have become smaller but they have continued. And in Naypyidaw, the capital, we're getting the first reports that someone may have been killed in altercations between protesters and and the security forces. So it's a very, very fluid time. We don't know what momentum the protests have. They seem very determined. People seem incredibly energized in their desire to oppose this takeover by the military. But we just don't know what's going to happen because this is an army, after all, that's that's crushed many uprisings and, and demonstrations in the past. So we'll come on to what might come next um, in a bit. But what's your best understanding of why now? So the ostensible reason that's been given is unhappiness about the elections, but the elections were in November. So why early February? So the elections were in early November, around the, I think it was the same week as the, as the US elections. The commander-in-chief, the head of the army, who turned 65 uh, this year, is meant to retire I think he had thought that he might have a chance of of becoming the president after the elections. I think he had hoped that the pro-army party, the Union Solidarity and Development Party, or USDP, would do reasonably well, as well as many ethnic minority parties that were contesting the elections as well. When they didn't do well, when the NLD, the party of Aung San Suu Kyi, won a landslide victory, the army first said that they would recognize and respect the results. But in December came increasing allegations from the USDP side of massive electoral fraud. And the army commander-in-chief and others in the army latched onto that and demanded an investigation. That call for an investigation was rejected by the Union Election Commission. And that led in January to demands by the army that there be a special session of parliament to discuss these allegations. That was also rejected by the Speaker of the Lower House of Parliament. That was followed by an ultimatum and parliament, the new parliament, the newly elected parliament was meant to sit on the 1st of February. And so the ultimatum was the weekend before the ultimatum passed. There was some attempts back and forth at reaching a compromise that failed and the army seized power just on the on the eve of of parliament sitting. And the promise now is of new elections within the next 12 months. 
So what reason is there to think that the outcome would be any different unless the elections themselves were set up in such a way as to guarantee a different outcome? Given what happened in November, given the result, would elections at any point in the next 12 months produce a different result? It's very difficult to say that they would. I mean, the NLD won a landslide. I think with the army takeover, if anything, Aung San Suu Kyi is more popular than ever. Strength of feeling against uh, the military is very high. I think the, the, the pro-army party would do even worse if elections were held today or even in, in, in a year's time. I think there are a couple of different sort of possibilities. I mean, one is that, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi has now been charged with illegal possession of walkie-talkies, communications equipment, but that carries, I think, a maximum prison sentence of three years. So one thing would be that they would keep her under house arrest for this period through the next elections, which is what they did back in, uh, the army did back in 2010 when elections were held then. The other possibility is that they would disband the NLD. The other might be that they hold fresh elections and count on the NLD and also boycotting those elections. There are different possibilities. There's also the possibility that they might try to change the the electoral system from a first-past-post system to a proportional representation system, in which case the smaller parties, including the ethnic minority parties, might do better and they might think that they would have a better chance because the army has an automatic hold on 25% of the seats. So they actually just need allied parties to to win 25% to be able to choose the president and, and a new government. And one of the things that highlights is the extent to which Seen from the outside, there's often a fixation when it comes to a coup like this on it's overturning an election result. When can the next election happen to kind of reset what's often called in this context democracy? But the scenarios you've just laid out, either excluding the leading candidate, the leading candidate boycotting it, changing the rules, they all show the ways in which fixating on elections as the test of democracy actually skews what's possible here. I mean, elections do not sound like the solution to Burma's problems, Well, this whatever is a, one thinks about the need for democracy. I mean, on the one hand, I think there's an overwhelming desire on the part of people of, of many different backgrounds, and especially the sort of urban middle classes and the people who are out on the streets, that they want to see the back of any kind of military rule and, and military domination. And they call that democracy, and they want to see elections. And there's a huge amount of support for Aung San Suu Kyi in particular, at the same time, this is a deeply divided society, deep you know, divided along lines of, of race and, and religion and ethnicity as well. And, you know, this is a country that's experienced decades of armed conflict and parts of the country are still in armed conflict. So it's it's also difficult to see exactly how democracy helps to solve some of these broader problems that the country is facing, not just armed conflict that I mentioned, but underdevelopment, climate change that's coming uh, as well. In time, given the urgency and, and the pressing nature of many of these problems, I mean, in a way, the country needs to, to unite to face all of these problems and, and democracy, if anything, at least in the short term, might further divide that society. So it's a very difficult circle to square. I mean, the one hand, people don't want tyranny, don't want dictatorship, want political freedom. They want a system that can assure them of that and a system that, that will allow them to, to choose the government that they want. At the same time, elections and aspects of those elections are almost bound to further divide society and take the focus away from some of the very urgent tasks at hand, not least bringing peace to a country that's that's in the midst of armed conflict. When we talked about this before, you took us through the, the complicated history of Aung San Suu Kyi's relationship with the army back to her father's time. And you know, it's, it, it has proved very confusing, baffling almost often for Western outsiders to understand her status as a sort of heroine of 
liberal democracy and then her transformation almost into a pariah and now back to a symbol of freedom again. There is clearly a lot of support for her and her party on the streets. And yet you wrote in the New York Times just this week that we also have to understand that there is an ethno-nationalist aspect to this that connects her or did connect her at least to some of the imperatives that lie behind the army's approach to politics. Is it at all possible to disentangle in her current support the element of it which is ethno-nationalist rather than what we might think of as straightforwardly democratic? I mean, I think what we're seeing right now in, in Burma or in Myanmar is this outpouring of support in general, uh, not just for her, but for the whole idea of some kind of government that's not a military, militarily dominated government. And I think you have both people, millions of people who voted for her, who adore her, who want her as their leader. But you also have civil society groups, human rights activists who've been very critical of her government over these past few years. Uh, this is a government that they feel has become increasingly authoritarian in many ways. Uh, you've had people from civil society groups locked up uh, by the government over the past couple of years, but who've chosen now to put all of that aside to try to unite and find a common front against uh, this military takeover. You also have the ethnic armed organizations, the insurgent groups uh, in different parts of the country. You have ethnic political, ethnically based or ethnic minority political parties as well that contested the elections against the NLD. And they too, or at least some of them, are now saying that, you know, we have our differences, but we are united in, in wanting to see an end to this military takeover and find a way back to some kind of path to democracy. So it's a, you know, it's a lot of different people responding in different ways. But right now, the protests go beyond just that core support for Aung San Suu Kyi and the NLD. And would you characterize the core support that was manifested in the landslide victory in November as broadly speaking ethno-nationalist in the sense that, as you say, millions of people adore her. And part of the reason they adore her is because of her history and because of what she represents for the history of the country. What lay behind that landslide in your mind? I think it's partly that. I mean, it's partly her story and the story of her her father, who was the the nationalist hero and the the father of sort of Burmese independence back in the 1940s. It's partly her as a symbol for for decades, really, of resistance to to army rule and the old army junta back in the 1990s and and 2000s, and a feeling that she had sacrificed so much for for the country. But I think it's also something completely different, which is that over the past 10 years, despite the fact that it hasn't been a full democracy, but it's been a hybrid political system, people have experienced a degree of political freedom uh, unprecedented over the past half century. And for the middle classes, at least, a degree of economic growth and, and progress that also the country hasn't seen for, for a very long time. And though I think in reality, there are many different reasons why that happened. Uh, many people credit Aung San Suu Kyi for the way in which this, you know, these past many years have, have worked out in a positive way. And so they feel that she is the only one that they can trust. And also, I think many people support her handling of, of COVID, where, you know, for a very poor country, Myanmar is actually, or Burma has handled COVID quite well. So she was credited with that too. So it's a mix. And interestingly enough, I mean, many of us thought that the ethnic minority parties would do reasonably well. And many people in ethnic minority constituencies or many ethnic minority people in constituencies around the country seem to have voted for the NLD as much as for ethnic minority parties. So that suggests that the NLD doesn't just have a kind of ethno-nationalist base, and they certainly didn't try to play that card in the run-up to the elections, but has a much broader base, as it was shown in the November polls. 
And as you say, there's a whole series of armed conflicts going on as well, often on nationalist or ethnic lines. What options are there here? One has to presume that the people who have now taken power are looking at possibilities to entrench their power and they're willing to be ruthless in various ways. What possibilities are there for them to try to mobilize support by taking the fight to those insurgents, if that's what they are? Is there is there scope there for that kind of nationalist, I use that word in scare quotes, but that kind of nationalist politics on the part of the army? It's it's really complicated because, you know, first, we don't know where these protests are going to go over the coming weeks. But assuming that the protests are not able to unseat this new military government and the military government continues over these months and, and, and year at least, then I think it's a you know, there's a question of, as you said, I mean, exactly what policy they'll, they'll or strategy they'll follow against their battlefield enemies and, and more than two dozen different ethnic ethnic-based non-state armies around the country, the biggest of which, you know, has fields over 30,000 troops on the, along the Chinese border. My guess is, and, and looking back at, you know, sort of recent Burmese history or modern Burmese history, whenever there's a crisis at the center and there are problems for the army at the center dealing with protests and demonstrations and uprising, the army then follows a, a relatively conciliatory policy towards these non-state armies. And so, it's not impossible that, again, some of them, there might be new army operations and, and an assertive position, but it's equally possible, perhaps more likely, that they will actually give a lot more room to these non-state armed groups, agree to ceasefires, informal ceasefires, allow them to do whatever they want. And I think some of these ethnic armed organizations, some of which have now declared their opposition to the military takeover, but I'm sure will be looking at what strategic opportunities they have at a time when the army is busy in, in Rangoon and in other cities at the centre. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. What scope is there for outside actors to play any kind of decisive role here? So there's always the question of what Western governments will do. There's a particular question for the Australian government, given that what's happened to one Australian citizen who was advising Aung San Suu Kyi. What about China, given the border and what you've just described? Does China have a role to play here in deciding what happens next? China is probably the most important outside country. China has uh, enormous economic, not economic stakes. I don't think, I don't think Burma is actually important for, for China, but China is incredibly important for, for Burma economically. There are many different Chinese investments and trade with China is, is the lifeblood of the Burmese economy at this point. China also has links, direct or indirect, with many of these non-state armed groups, these ethnic armed organizations along the border. So what China says makes a difference. I don't think China is happy with the coup. I think China prioritizes stability. They will think of the coup as being something that's potentially destabilizing, but they'll also be pragmatic. And I think they will also look to see what happens in a few weeks or a few months and see who's in power and deal with whoever's in power. I don't think that they will be trying to push the military government to to hand back power to, to Aung San Suu Kyi or even to try to push forward a, a date for possible elections in the future. 
I don't think that the rest of the world really has that much leverage. Um, this is an army elite, like much of the Burmese political elite, that's been isolated for such a long time. All of their friends and enemies are within the country. Very few people in the army have traveled abroad. Um, I don't think they're motivated primarily by economic you know, sort of motivations. I think it's much more about questions of, of, of power and, and status within the country. I think Western sanctions, or at least American sanctions, have the possibility of dealing a really bad blow to the economy at a time when it's already in an acute crisis because of this past year of, of the pandemic and, and related downturn. But I think in the West, in Washington and elsewhere, there's a much more sophisticated discussion about what the impact of sanctions, broad sanctions, can be in places like like Burma. And I don't think, in looking at the recent public statements from the Biden administration, I don't think they're going to, to rush towards the kinds of broad sanctions that were in place 15, 20 years ago. And very targeted sanctions, even though the humanitarian impact will, will be much less, the political impact may be, may be very marginal as well. Inevitably with this, there's a tendency to feel that we've been here before and a lot of the coverage that I've read in Western newspapers is talking about how this relates to previous versions of the same thing. I'd like to get a sense from you of what you think might be different, particularly maybe when it comes, I mean, it's almost a cliche, but these things still matter, information technology and its role in this. As you said, the the charge that Aung San Suu Kyi is facing is to do with her use of walkie-talkies, which somehow you know, symbolic of a 20th century technology. I can't remember the last time I saw the phrase walkie-talkies. And yet, you know, I've been looking at um, videos that have come out of Rangoon, you know, people filming themselves protesting, all of that that we associate, in a sense, with the Arab Spring and then with protest movements ever since. So this is, you know, this is, as it were, the first of these in the age of TikTok or whatever you want to use as your go-to platform. Has that, could that make a difference? It could make an enormous difference. I think that, you know, I think that the, the protesters are going to be savvy enough, probably in, in Rangoon, at least in other parts of the country, not to try to, to confront directly security forces that they know may, may use lethal force against them. But I think they will try to use new technologies, social media platforms, other things to, to organize and be in this for the long haul. I mean, not necessarily, you know, assume that in, in a week or two weeks, there's going to be revolution in the country but to try to continue to protest and push against and, and organize civil disobedience against this new military administration. I don't think that's necessarily a strategy for seizing power. I don't think that the military is necessarily going to bend uh, in the face of protest. But what it means is that the protesters and the opposition could deny the military the ability to consolidate their grip on power over the coming months and year. And where that leads the country is is anyone's guess, because this is a country that's facing so many urgent challenges. I mean, we have COVID, obviously, we have the need for emergency vaccinations over this over these coming months. Uh, 30 million doses of, of the AstraZeneca vaccine was meant to come in from, from India over these couple of months. We have this terrible economic crisis, soaring poverty rates. I mean, so it's not a country that can kind of wait around for politics to, to move in the right direction. So where all of these things lead, I mean, but it's not going to be a return to kind of the, the story of 20 years ago when a junta took over and Burma was a sleepy country. Most people were subsistence farmers and they could consolidate their power over a period of years. And that, that was it. I mean, I think you have, you know, on the one hand, I think an army administration that's determined to do things its way. You have this young generation, especially in the in the cities that's determined to oppose them. 
And then you have these urgent challenges that, you know, are going to, to overwhelm the country. So where we are in six or 12 months time, it's, it's very difficult to guess. Is there any evidence that the army has also learned or adapted or changed? Again, the images of these elderly or at least much older generals confronting youth protests, are the older generals getting any input from people who might be able to tell them that this time is indeed different, that they're facing a new world? I think what's really important to remember, because we always talk about the army or the generals of the junta, is that these are different generations. So the people who were in charge back in the 2000s, the junta at that time, were generals who were in their 70s. And the oldest, uh, the dictator, the autocrat, General Than Shui, was almost 80 when he retired in 2010. The ex-generals who led the government in the early 2010s were men in their late 60s, early 70s at that time. The current commander-in-chief is 64. And most of the generals below him are much younger men in their late 40s and early 50s. So, Dave, I don't know if you think of late 40s, early 50s as, as old or young, but they're not, they're not, as, uh, they're not as old as, as uh, the previous generation of generals. They're different, though, than the, you know, the much younger people who I think are, are behind many of the protests now, people in their late 20s, early 30s, who are much more savvy, I think, with new technology. But the army is also, I think, you know, with the expansion of, of Facebook, especially, has been trying to, to keep up with new technology in terms of surveillance, in terms of trying to ensure that social media platforms may work to their advantage as well. So how this all plays out over the coming months in terms of the army's own preparations for this kind of situation, how they will try to use social media or turn off social media, and what the protesters and opposition may be able to do in response, I guess, I guess we'll see. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We often talk about generational politics, but usually in relation to Western democracies, but that age group of which we're members, I suppose, and that the army, the younger generals, as you say, are also part of too, a kind of Gen X age group who are somewhere between the, the younger people who have grown up entirely with this technology and with a different perspective and the 70 or 80 year olds who come from another world. Presumably they are also facing exactly the pull that some people in the West feel in that generation between to other generations who are really divided. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how it works out because on the one hand, you know, you have you have young protesters who are trying to use this new technology and are trying to use social media. On the other hand, you know, you have people who say, well, what matters most is, is what happens on the street and there's confrontation on the streets as well. And it's not enough to, you know, post things on Facebook. Uh, you need people who know how to mobilize and organize uh, physically on the streets in these cities. I'm not sure if that's right or, or wrong, but I think we'll see in the coming weeks whether the kind of range of protests that people are thinking about right now actually, you know, even make a dent in terms of the army's own calculations or, or this army, which has been so good at crushing protests in the past in the old fashioned way, is able to deal with this new generation of protesters as well. So one last question about the pandemic, because when we spoke before, you spoke about the general sense of surprise that Burma at that point had been relatively immune to the pandemic. The pandemic itself has now arrived in the country. As you say, there's also the imperative, as there is everywhere in the world, to get a vaccination program underway. At the same time, we are now a year into a pandemic that has had devastating effects on the global economy. Presumably, in a sense, that's the most serious challenge that the country faces. Its economy both under now conditions, local conditions of COVID restrictions and waiting for the vaccine, but also global conditions of a contraction. This is a, an economy and a nation under huge pressure. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the COVID sort of outbreak was in the autumn, the government felt compelled to put in different kinds of lockdown restrictions. And that began to kind of tip over an economy that was already facing acute stress just from the global economic downturn. So Myanmar, Burma depends on remittances from migrant workers in Thailand, especially that had dropped precipitously. The garment industry was dependent on exports to Europe, and that came close to collapse over the over the summer. There were major disruptions in, in trade with, with China. And the tourism economy, which is also a significant part of the economy, collapsed completely, obviously, over this over this year. And, and we've seen different studies now over the past year suggesting that poverty rates, people making less than $1.90 a day, which even in, in Burma is, is, is very little, soared from about 16% of the population before the pandemic in January to up to 63% of the population in October. There are other studies that suggest that up to 70% of people in different townships, including in in Rangoon or in Yangon, were skipping meals because of lack of money to pay for, for food. So there is at least a, a large segment of the Burmese population that was already facing um, severe distress. And now I think, you know, with the political crisis as well, with all the attention being focused on the politics as well, as opposed to economic recovery and, and management of the vaccination program, I just don't know where we're going to be in a, in a few months' time. Not to mention, I mean, with the protests as well, it's, it's possible that COVID, even though it's been under control up to a point, could spread yet again. Testing apparently has, has now nearly collapsed as well over the past couple of days with many public sector workers now on strike. Okay, so given all that, and, and I completely accept there's so much uncertainty, but if you had to give us your best guess of what's going to happen over the coming months... What is your sense of it? Where do you think this is heading? I think you have two different forces at work. You have an army leadership that I don't think wants to go back to the bad old days of the junta, but does want to to carve out a new political landscape that doesn't include Aung San Suu Kyi and go back to something like the hybrid constitution of the of the recent past. Against that, you have a new generation of people, uh, young people, the people who are out on the streets, who desperately want a life that's different from their parents. And I think having tasted a degree of political freedom, really don't want anything like a military administration for any length of time. So how that plays out exactly in the coming months, I think is anyone's guess. I think that the army administration will probably still be around in a few months time, but I think the protests and the opposition will also be around. That means increasing instability and how that comes up against, you know, all of these different challenges that we've talked about or mentioned. I think is anyone's guess in terms of where the country might be in in six or 12 months. In our regular slot this week, I'm going to be talking to Bronwyn Maddox of the Institute for Government, and we are going to be trying to do an audit of this government's performance during the last year of the pandemic. The latest episode of Talking Politics History of Ideas is now out. You have to go to the History of Ideas stream if you want to get it. Do please do that and subscribe. And there is one week left if you would like to get all of the books for the History of Ideas series through the LRB book box scheme, just go to the LRB website or the talkingpoliticspodcast.com site and you will find out how. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 